0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the frightening prospect that Donald Trump could return to the White House with the recent ABC Washington Post poll having Biden six points behind Trump. Although many Americans found Trump's recent CNN town hall appalling, it is increasingly apparent that what Democrats think should disqualify him only makes him stronger and more dangerous. In the wake of recriminations following Trump's deranged diatribe of combative concoctions on CNN, it should be clear he will be even worse next time. From 2016 to 2020, Trump's outrageous and sadistic behavior was on full display to the professional and qualified White House staff, But only a few insiders have had the decency and sense of responsibility to inform the public about how derelict and dangerous Trump was the first time around. Joining us is someone who experienced Trump close up in the Oval Office and was the first to warn the public about him, Miles Taylor, a national security expert who works in Washington, D.C. He served as Chief of Staff for Kirsten Nielsen, the former Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, under the Trump administration, where he published an anonymous essay in the New York Times, Blowing the Whistle on Presidential Misconduct. He later published the number one national bestseller, A Warning, revealed himself to be the author, and launched a campaign of ex-officials to oppose Donald Trump's re-election. He has worked as an advisor in the George W. Bush administration on Capitol Hill, as a CNN contributor and is the co-founder of multiple democracy reform groups. His forthcoming book is Blowback, a warning to save democracy from the next Trump. Then we'll look into encouraging signs that Biden's national security advisor had two meetings a few days ago lasting eight hours with China's top diplomat, and that the two countries could perhaps work together to end the war in Ukraine, with China in a position to get Putin to the table and the U.S. with similar influence over Ukraine. Joining us is Orville Schell, who was formerly the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California at Berkeley, and is currently the Arthur Ross Director of the Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations. His books include Mandate of Heaven, The Legacy of Tiananmen Square and the Next Generation of China's Leaders, Virtual Tibet, Searching for Shangri-La from the Himalayas to Hollywood, Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century, and most recently, My Old Home, A Novel of Exile. Then finally, we'll go back a few decades when Democrats had powerful senators in red states that are now under total far-right GOP control, and that Frank Church, a Democratic senator from Idaho, now home to militias and neo-Nazis, was a leading champion of democracy and transparency who fought the most powerful interests and won. Joining us is James Risen, a two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author whose investigative reporting has triggered a series of political firestorms. Among his best-selling books are State of War, The Secret History of the CIA and the Bush Administration, and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power and Endless War. The senior national security correspondent, at The Intercept, and a former investigative journalist with The New York Times. His latest book, just out, is The Last Honest Man, The CIA, the FBI, the Mafia, and the Kennedys, and One Senator's Fight to Save Democracy. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our soundbites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and furor. Your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org. Contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Miles Taylor, a national security expert who works in Washington, D.C. He served as Chief of Staff for Kirsten Nielsen, the former Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security under the Trump administration, where he published an anonymous essay in the New York Times, Blowing the Whistle on Presidential Misconduct. He later published the number one national bestseller, A Warning, revealed himself to be the author and launched a campaign of ex-officials to oppose Donald Trump's re-election. He's worked as an advisor in the George W. Bush administration on Capitol Hill and as a CNN contributor and is the co-founder of the D.C.-based Charter School and multiple democracy reform groups. And his forthcoming book out in July is Blowback, A Warning to Save Democracy from the Next Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Miles Taylor.
1: Ian, great to be with you as always, my friend.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Miles. But the next Trump is Trump. Trump.
1: I mean, uh, unfortunately, I think that's really shaping up to be the case. You know, the past two years, I think folks have been in a state of denial about Donald Trump's prospects for regaining the presidency. You know, you look at all of the legal cases against him, you look at the political opposition, even on his own side, trying to line up to take his place as the standard bearer of the party. But then you see days ago, in an ABC News Washington Post poll that Donald Trump really is the odds-on favorite to win the Republican uh, primaries and beat a Republican presidential nominee. And at this point, depending on the poll you look at, he's beating Joe Biden by several percentage points. I mean, not just to Democrats, but to Republicans, a lot of Republicans, this has privately been seen as a nightmare. And the nightmare is coming to life in real time. Now, let me caveat that by saying, a lot could happen in these primaries, but the fact that a twice-impeached, unconstrained former commander-in-chief like Donald Trump is leading at this point in the polls for 2024 should be cause for alarm.
0: And the polls on the Democratic side give Robert Kennedy Jr. something like 19%, which it would indicate that there's a disquiet on the Democratic side about Joe Biden
1: there absolutely is and it's and it's even beyond the democratic side i think the real struggle for president biden right now is with independence now another survey showed recently that two-thirds of americans don't think that joe biden has the mental or physical stamina for a second term now that's not me saying that that's the majority of americans so if he's hoping that he can cobble together the democratic coalition and enough independence to win again uh, you know, messages like that are a big, big red flag for Democrats. Now, I will tell you, I spend a lot of time talking to these people, including prospective nominees for the presidency on the Democratic side, people who would run if Joe Biden wasn't running. And I wouldn't even describe it as concern. I would describe it as panic. And it's odd because publicly, these same folks have to go out there and say, I stand behind Joe Biden and, you know, I want to support him for reelection. And privately, they're very, very concerned about his ability to go up against a Donald Trump or any other Republican in 2024. Uh, It's shaping up to be more of a train wreck than we saw in 2016 or
0: 2020. So candidates like Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, others that I particularly like, like Chris Murphy, senator from Connecticut, is very strong on foreign policy, they just have to sit it out right and wait in the wings and they're the ones that i don't know whether specifically you've talked to them but they're the ones that have feeling kind of panicked
1: well there's uh, even beyond those folks and you know there's a few options here one is you know folks have privately signaled to the white house that they think it would be smart for president biden to leave an opening for someone else to step in uh, but there's also people who have quietly considered challenging Biden. And I would say that's only a handful at this point. But I'm aware of at least one or two Democrats who are still considering entering the primary against Biden, who I think would actually be more formidable uh, than RFK Jr. Now, whether they do it or not is a big question. Often when these folks look at the polls about challenging an incumbent, they decide not to do it. But it's, it's pretty significant worry at this point about whether they have a competitive candidate to beat a Donald Trump or another MAGA Republican.
0: Well, but challenging an incumbent Democratic president could be a nail in the coffin, because look what happened when Senator Teddy Kennedy challenged the incumbent president, Jimmy Carter, who subsequently lost to Reagan.
1: Well, exactly. And I'll give you an example. And I talk about this a little bit in my book, Blowback, that comes out in July. But when Donald Trump was running for re-election in 2020, he was certainly seen by a lot of Republicans as one of the most damaged figures in the history of American politics. And you would have expected that given how damaged Donald Trump was at that point with one impeachment under his belt— that he would have been challenged by a number of Republicans. Of course he wasn't. And, and during that time period, I consulted with a number of elected Republicans who were thinking about entering the primaries against the incumbent president. People who really loathed Donald Trump wanted to see him taken down, but ultimately those folks stepped back for, from a combination of polls that showed them it was going to be very difficult to go against an incumbent of their own party, but also fear fear that they would be widely scorned and attacked by their own tribe. And I think the same thing is holding back a number of Democrats who might consider primary Joe Biden is they don't want to be scorned from the tribe uh, and on the receiving end of the ire of the establishment. But that said, uh, there still is a five-alarm fire here in the polls for Joe Biden. Um, and, And I think the White House should be thinking creatively if Biden is absolutely going to do it, about how to make the ticket more compelling. And I've heard folks talk about potentially replacing Kamala Harris in the number two slot. I think all options should be on the table if they want to win this election.
0: So let's uh, talk a little about blowback, a warning to save democracy from the next Trump, just in the context of what we just saw this week uh, with uh, CNN town hall with Donald Trump, which alarmed a lot of people. CNN, of course, has gotten a lot of criticism as a result of it. But in many ways, maybe it's better to at least have the guy expose himself as to who he is as opposed to have him completely only sealed up in a, in a friendly bubble of Fox and, and Newsmax and other outlets that give him softball questions. So what was your re- reaction to it, Miles?
1: Well, I think any time you take a controversial figure like a Donald Trump and give them a national platform, two things are possible. One, it could lend credence to their views. But two, it also gives you an opportunity to challenge those views and hold that person to account. Now, you know, I'll withhold judgment on whether CNN was successful in doing that in the town hall. But in general, I don't think you should shy away from being able to put controversial figures on the stage as long as you're able to give them the grilling that they deserve. And in Trump's case, there's a lot that needs to be exposed if he is the front runner. It's it's one of the reasons that I wrote this book is people don't need to take my word for it. I went and interviewed dozens and dozens of former Trump officials at the highest levels, Republicans in Congress, and asked a very simple question. What would a second term of Donald Trump look like? What does he have in mind in terms of policies he wants to implement in a second go around that he couldn't the first time? And if he's succeeded by a savvier MAGA successor, what policies will they implement? And Ian, I thought I was prepared for those answers. I was incredibly shocked by what I heard from po- folks. And, and the picture they painted is really a second term that results in the systematic dissolution of a range of Democratic guardrails. Now, these weren't speculative predictions from these folks. They were based on things that Donald Trump wanted to do in the first term, but held off doing because he wanted to win re-election. In a second term, it will be no holds barred. And it was, you know, I heard everything from shadowy presidential powers that would get invoked to ways to use the CIA against political enemies to assassination plots. I mean, it was scary stuff. And, you know, some of these are folks that are still in the MAGA orbit. So what I wanted to do was paint a very clear picture of what a second Trump term would look like so folks can make an informed judgment as they head into the 24 presidential cycle.
0: But you were there, Miles, in the first term. And I don't know that we've got a full accounting of what happened, you know, from people like yourself and former Chief of Staff General Kelly, who saw him up close and personal and and wanting to do the most outrageous things. And here we have the end of Title 42 on the southern border. Trump apparently asked General Kelly whether the Marines could be deployed on the border to shoot Mexicans in the legs. I mean, that's just one anecdote. I mean, do you think the full accounting has come out? We haven't heard from General Mattis and others. We know that they all thought he was nuts. At least Bill Barr is now speaking frankly about how and fit for office said Trump is.
1: Yeah, look, I think it's a little bit scattered, Ian. You've got some folks from the administration who've come out and given a partial accounting, but I would agree with you. I still don't think history has the full accounting of how bad it was and how bad it could have gotten during the Trump administration. Uh, and that's one of the pictures that I tried to paint and blow back is in addition to talking about what could happen in a second Trump term, I talk about things, untold stories from the first term that could give us a strong sense of what might happen next time, including talking about some of those examples that you witnessed. I mean, I sat in the Oval Office as Donald Trump fantasized about replicating North Korea's demilitarized zone on the U.S. southern border, replete with landmines, barbed wire, electric fences, armed guards. Uh, And he talked in graphic detail about the flesh piercing spikes that he wanted installed on the border wall designed specifically to maim climbers so bloodily that other migrants would be scared to follow suit. And as you noted, he also mused about U.S. soldiers firing on civilians because he knew that if they blew the legs out from underneath pregnant mothers, it would keep them from reaching the border. That's the level of very graphic Uh, and and plainly illegal activity that Donald Trump wanted to undertake as president in the first term. He was dissuaded from doing that by the so-called axis of adults that worked under him. In a second term, he won't be.
0: Well, a lot of critics have described what happened at the CNN town hall, where he steamrolled Caitlin Collins of CNN, that they've described him as a bully. But you're almost describing him as being a sadist.
1: Yeah, I, I... I genuinely think that um he's one of the most dangerous people on the place of the planet. And Ian, I would have told you, let's say, six or seven years ago that that sounded very hyperbolic and, you know, would have to be an exaggeration. Uh, I've spent most of my career in national security, not in politics, but after being exposed to this guy for two years, that was my ultimate takeaway. Now, you know, I mentioned, in the book, you know, one of the individuals that I worked with in the administration, uh, someone much more senior than me, said that he was Donald Trump was the most evil person he had ever met in his life. Now, this was an official who had spent time on the battlefield uh, in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and had encountered terrorists. Um, it's pretty significant to say that uh, you know General Mattis called him a threat to the fabric of our republic behind the scenes. Uh, To me, that was extraordinary talk coming from people who had seen throughout their careers all sorts of dangerous figures. And in this case, they're talking about their boss. They're talking about their boss, the president of the United States. I think it's galling to a lot of Americans that we would be in a position where that individual could again be the leader of the free world. But we are a coin toss away from Donald Trump holding that office. So I do think whether or not the CNN town hall was the right format, it really is imperative that we have a full, clear-headed conversation about who this person is that we would potentially uh, put back into the White House.
0: So in the last few minutes then, Miles Taylor, let's talk about what can be done to stop Donald Trump because one thing that's clear is that he's almost like a kind of – monster out of a Marvel comic or a Marvel movie, the more you try to disqualify him, the stronger he gets. So what can break that?
1: Well, there's three things, Ian, that I would point to. The first I've alluded to, I really do think we have to open our eyes. There's something that I call the the victim mentality has overtaken voters since the Trump presidency. And Americans have lamented the brokenness of our politics as if the situation we are in was an unwelcome or faultless mishap. We've gotta be candid with ourselves. This isn't happening to us, it's happening because of us. And a lot of the political division in our country starts at the grassroots, in our city streets. So we need to be clear-eyed about the political division in this country and come together uh, against political extremism. But secondly, to your question, we really have to proactively protect our institutions. If we are a coin flip away from someone like Donald Trump Becoming president again, what can Congress, what can state legislatures do to make sure the guardrails of democracy are protected against him or another anti democratic figure who might hold office? And in Blowback, I talk a lot about those specific guardrails and reforms that could be put in place to protect our institutions. Uh, but third and finally, you know, we shouldn't hide from a deeper menace. And the deeper menace I actually think here is people not speaking up. And that's especially within the Republican tribe. I still know so many senior officials from the Trump administration and elected leaders at the highest levels of Congress in the Republican Party who privately express complete fear about a return of Trump, but publicly have still not come forward to express that. I think we desperately need those people to speak their minds. Uh, and to also give air cover to Republican voters who are looking for an excuse to withhold their support for him in a second go-around.
0: Well, Miles Taylor, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: Ian, thanks for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Miles Taylor, who's a national security expert who works in Washington, D.C. He served as the chief of staff for Kirsten Nielsen, the former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security under the Trump administration, where he published an anonymous essay in the New York Times blowing the whistle on presidential misconduct. He later published the number one national bestseller, A Warning, revealed himself to be the author and launched a campaign of ex-officials to oppose Donald Trump's re-election. He's worked as an advisor in the George... W. Bush administration on Capitol Hill as a CNN contributor and is the co-founder of a D.C.-based charter school and multiple democracy reform groups. And his forthcoming book out in July is Blowback, a warning to save democracy from the next Trump. We can take a brief station break. We're back looking into encouraging signs that Biden's national security advisor had two meetings a few days ago lasting eight hours with China's top diplomats and that the two countries could perhaps work together to end the war in Ukraine, with China in a position to bring Putin to the table and the U.S. with similar influence over Ukraine. From the war against disorder, from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay, democracy is coming. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Orville Schell, who was formerly the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California, Berkeley, and is currently the Arthur Ross Director of the Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations. His books include Mandate of Heaven, The Legacy of Tiananmen Square, and The Next Generation of China's Leaders, Virtual Tibet, Searching for Shangri-La from the Himalayas to Hollywood, Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century, and most recently, My Old Home, A Novel of Exile. Welcome to Background Briefing, Orville Schill. Pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us. And just a a few days ago, in a meeting in Vienna that lasted for eight hours, uh, over two days, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, and China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, met in what senior U.S. officials are describing as constructive talks that were candid. Now, candid and frank often used in the diplomatic context often means a little friction. What's your understanding of what went on over those long eight-hour meetings?
2: Well, I think the Biden administration, to its credit, has been seeking to find some way after the uh, balloon incident canceled his uh, his summit, uh, to, you know, have some new, new kind of interaction with China. And at last, there seems to be some semblance, at least a willingness to sit down. And we see not only has uh, Sullivan met with, with uh, Wang Yi, who's China's highest uh, ranking foreign policy uh, official, but uh, Ambassador Nicholas Burns in Beijing uh, met with uh, the foreign minister, Xin Gang, and now John Kerry has even been uh, been uh, given an audience with the climate negotiator uh, in China. So there seems to be a bit of a of a campaign going on on the Chinese side to at least open the doors to some semblance of discourse and talk, which is what the Biden administration has been seeking for months.
0: Well, uh, recently Secretary of State Blinken. Um, Uh, met with the Washington Post editorial board and in the interview, which happened on World Press Freedom Day a couple of weeks ago, he spoke positively about China's 12-point peace plan that they announced in February vis-a-vis Ukraine, said that that some of the points were quite useful and could be built upon. So we don't necessarily know what happened in the eight-hour meeting between Wang Yi and Jake Sullivan, but I'm assuming that Ukraine was pretty high on the agenda. What's your sense? I
2: I think the Ukraine is one reason why the United States is being so solicitous. In fact, some Republicans think uh, it's being too solicitous of China. Uh, For instance, the United States has not yet released the evidence of what was in the balloon that it uh, shot down. Uh, over the Atlantic Ocean that have been drifting over the continental United States, and that they've not done so in order not to antagonize China and to kind of help facilitate the kinds of uh, meetings that are recently we've seen taking place.
0: So that's not to say that the evidence that was retrieved from the ocean off of South Carolina was either not there or was powerful in terms of indicting China. So are there two possibilities there, or do you think the latter is more likely?
2: I think uh, the, the evidence will probably be pretty damning. And the United States has wanted to kind of keep it in abeyance uh, in hopes of opening some channels of negotiation, because the situation with China and Taiwan, the South China Sea, the East China Sea, is quite fraught.
0: And China does seem to react rather hysterically uh, when they're caught red-handed. I mean, uh, going back to the origins of COVID, they certainly overreacted when the Australians suggested some kind of international inquiry. They then slapped them with all kinds of trade sanctions.
2: Well, one of the liabilities of uh, the People's Republic of China, particularly under Xi Jinping, having attained wealth and power, is that uh, it has generated wolf warrior diplomacy, which means that China does not give a little to get a little. It sees yielding, compromise as weakness, and it's really not uh, on the agenda. So this makes it very difficult for diplomacy of any any kind to happen. Uh, And I think even now, during uh, Sullivan's meetings with Wang Yi, uh, much of the time was spent with China reiterating its demands. If the United States doesn't trim its jib and recognize its folly and come around, there can't be any meaningful dialogue. We'll see how this works out. But there are many other signs that would suggest this is going to be a very heavy lift.
0: But in terms of Ukraine, it would seem sort of logical in a way that if there were to be a peace deal, that it would make sense that China could bring a reluctant Putin to the table and the United States could bring a reluctant Zelensky to the table. Now, I'm sure nothing will happen until after this uh, spring offensive, but still it would seem that both sides could sort of need each other, don't they?
2: Yes, I think you're right. And I think this is in uh, the Biden administration's calculation that it is conceivable that China could be the intermediary. Uh, They haven't done a particularly good job in keeping their neutrality. Uh, They've been kind of hugging it out with Putin. But nonetheless, uh, I think there is that hope. And even Zelensky, I think, recognizes that there's a possibility. And uh, I think that's fair enough. Nobody wants to see this war go on, and no one wants to see things get worse with some nuclear weapons used. But uh, it's very hard for China uh, to actually play the role of a neutral uh, arbiter when it is so demonstrably buddied up with uh, Putin and Russia.
0: Well, we're hearing reports, of course, that the U.S. is continually warning China not to supply arms to Russia to fight in Ukraine. So I don't know whether that is based upon any evidence or that's just a fear on the part of the U.S. What do you think?
2: No, I think the U.S. is uh, making every effort to, to to warn China in a way that's as unprovocative as possible, that this is one of our red lines, just as they have red lines like Taiwan. So, um, but on the other hand, there are all sorts of gray zones uh whereby weapons do get to to Russia uh, through second parties, and uh, the Chinese are specialists at this. They've been doing it for years with the North Koreans, for instance, shipping oil, trans-shipping oil and things in 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 indirect ways. So it's not as simple as we uh, might hope it would be. uh, But uh, I think China, China has taken note that this is, this is a really uh, 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 you know, hard issue for the United States.
0: But it's also something that's going to backfire on China with, with Europe, right? Where they have massive markets, China being Germany's biggest trading partner, etc. And you recently had another display of this wolf warrior diplomacy coming from China's ambassador to France who basically parroted Putin's line that that uh, Ukraine's not a real country that upset a lot of Europeans so does that then lead you to conclude that there's a kind of battle between two lobbies within China the sort of more militant uh, military oriented lobby and the international business lobby
2: i think that's probably a, a fair assumption the ambassador to- France, Lou yeah, did make this hysterical statement, which got him sort of got his chain yanked uh, that Ukraine wasn't a real country. I, I think this sort of does express China's deepest belief, but it's not going to it shouldn't be saying it in public if it's trying to play a role of a quasi neutral arbiter to bring peace between Russia and, and the Ukraine. But nonetheless, I think we all we all can can sense that China really is uh, very devoted to the idea of making uh, the world safe for autocracy. And in that regard, Russia's their biggest ally.
0: But what do they want from Russia? I mean, some analysts suggest that they're perfectly happy to be the sort of big brother to a diminished Russia. And in the trip that Xi Jinping took to Moscow, apparently Putin was hoping that the Chinese would finance a new... Gas pipeline, you know, obviously their gas pipelines tend to head west towards Europe, and he wanted them to finance a gas pipeline into China, and the Chinese wouldn't play ball.
2: Well, I I think, I mean, that's just uh, act one. Uh, you do have to recognize that China uh, gets most of its uh, oil and gas through the Straits of Malacca, through the South China Sea. In other words, it's very vulnerable uh, in those regards and would like nothing better than to have oil and gas pipelines for Russia. Uh, at at a very uh, cheap, uh, inexpensive price. So I think Russia is important to them, particularly as we see the formation of alliances all around China. We have AUKUS, the Quad, Five Eyes. We have the Philippines turning. uh, India is turning and still with some ambiguity, to be sure. So I think it's very important for China to keep some substantial allies not just Iran and North Korea and Syria and a few oddball countries. And Russia is a a country of consequence with tremendous natural resources.
0: But, of course, the bond is largely, as you mentioned, that they're authoritarian states and that they're openly opposed to democracy. At least Putin pretends to have a democracy, but it's obviously a totally rigged democracy But Xi Jinping is actually quite hostile to democracy. He speaks out against it at every opportunity. He
2: does. And I think, you know, here is where Russia and China are bound together, not simply by autocracy, but their common currency is that of grievance of being disrespected, disesteemed, looked down upon by the outside Western liberal democratic world. And this is why you have constant, the constant leitmotif in every statement by China that, that, we need, that China needs to be, have mutual respect with the United States. And the only problem there is that if you want to be respected, it certainly helps to act respectably. Uh, And that is something where I think uh, uh, we'd have to say China often uh, comes up short. But they do take great umbrage at the fact that there is a kind of a a sense that they are a retrograde, backward authoritarian, Stalinist, Leninist state, and uh, thus do not win the recognition and acceptance of much of the rest of the world.
0: But the evidence, unfortunately, supports that. Look what happened with Hong Kong the idea of one nation, two systems, nobody's going to buy that anymore, particularly the Taiwanese. So, no, you're
2: right. They're not. But nonetheless, they got Taiwan. They got Hong Kong, and they would like to get Taiwan. So we can't discount China. It still has some cards to play. It's still very dynamic economically. Um, There's a lot of codependence on on supply chains into China uh, by many, many countries, including our own, including Taiwan, for that matter. So it's a very complicated tableau uh, that was formed during the, the heyday of globalization. And now as things become more hostile, the question is, how do you decouple in a way that doesn't completely run the global economic train off the rails?
0: Well, it would seem one of the first things that they could do successfully between the US and China is for China to crack down on the triads and the uh, gangs that send the precursors for fentanyl to Mexico out of Macau and Hong Kong.
2: Yes, you're speaking now like a rational person, and uh, that would certainly help. And There are many things that China could do which would instantly help remedy their situation. Uh, Will they do it? Uh, So far, they've shown little inclination to trim their jibs in any way that might uh, uh, win them favor, uh, either in Europe or in the United States or Australia, for that matter, or Canada or even India. So there's a a, a contradiction at work here that's of, of a very sort of stark kind that, again, making these kinds of concessions, I think, to Xi Jinping occur as uh, as a manifestation of weakness rather than a diplomatic acumen.
0: It's not a subtext then, Orville, that they're paying the West back for the opium wars?
2: I think, you know, there's a very deep, deep historical narrative in China, as in Russia, uh, of uh, the sense of, of both countries having been oppressed uh, colonialized, imperialized, and occupied, uh, true, uh, in many regards, but it's the fact that this narrative of victimization and humiliation continues, even as China is really extraordinarily successful in many, many ways is a bit of a contradiction because you cannot be a victim at the same time. You're a success. And there's, that's built into the Leninist narrative is based on the notion of victimhood and humiliation and predation. Uh, and it's hard to vacate that for them because it's so deep into their bloodstream. And this is Putin's problem too.
0: So just in the last uh, couple of minutes then, Orville Shell, looking for something positive here, one tends to be the deliverer of doom here with the headlines being such that... Uh, so much is so depressing. I don't know whether you watched Trump at the CNN town hall, but it was a frightening display of the possibility that we could have our own despot, uh, who's obviously yeah. completely incompetent, mentally unstable, and a proto-fascist. So we have some serious problems. But So I'm just looking for a little bit of daylight here. It seems that from what B- Blinken told the Washington Post and the eight-hour meeting between China's top diplomat and the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. There's some reason to be optimistic, isn't there?
2: Yes, I do think this is an important and interesting opening. And and it, it, if it was just one robin, it may not mean springtime. But as I said, we see these other openings with the U.S. ambassador with John Kerry, and there are other signs that China wants to kind of uh, recalibrate a bit. The question is, what will the terms of that recalibration be? And will they actually be able to deliver the kinds of pressure on Russia, which might help uh, resolve the Ukraine invasion? Um, That remains to be seen. And there's not a whole lot of evidence uh, that they are willing to make themselves more temperate. To wit, in China now we see the attack on the consulting firms, the raids on people who do financial due diligence, risk assessment. Uh, I mean, they're one thing after another which suggests that it's going to be difficult for China to have a major reformation of how it views the outside world, which is, in, in Xi Jinping's estimation, is a fundamentally hostile world, not only opposed to China, but would like to overthrow Xi Jinping himself and the Communist Party, and and the same with Putin. That's their view. That's the Lenin's view.
0: And he's he is a, a departure from previous Chinese leaders, uh, Xi Jinping, so he, yes. he himself is a bit of part of the problem, isn't it? You yeah.
2: know... It, you, I first went to China when Mao Zedong was still alive and the Cultural Revolution was still going on. And that whole period of Chinese history was one in where China needed an enemy. And Mao Zedong actually wrote about the necessity to have an enemy, uh, to keep yourself tuned up and keep people on your team. And I think we're sort of drifting back into that syndrome again with Xi Jinping, where everything is a contradiction, everything is struggle. And he sees the whole world in terms of us and them, of of friends and enemies, not in terms of a fluid situation where he has agency to actually change the circumstances. Uh, and relations with other countries for the better. He feels acted upon. He feels victimized. And that's a very difficult place uh, for uh, a moment, as we find now with Sullivan and Wang Yi and others, to actually renegotiate a new, a new uh, a kind of a, a balance point between the two countries.
0: Well, Shell, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Orville Shell, who was formerly the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California at Berkeley. He's currently the Arthur Ross Director of the Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations, and his books include Mandate of Heaven, The Legacy of Tiananmen Square, and The Next Generation of China's Leaders, Virtual Tibet, Searching for Shang- Shangri-La from the Himalayas to Hollywood, Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century, and most recently, My Old Home, A Novel of Exile. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into a leading champion of democracy and transparency who fought the most powerful interests and won. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Risen, a two time Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author whose investigative reporting has triggered a series of political firestorms. Among his best selling books are State of War, The Secret History of the CIA and the Bush Administration, and Pay Any Price Greed, Power, and Endless War the senior national security correspondent at The Intercept and a former investigative journalist with The New York Times. His new book, co-authored with Thomas Risen just out, is The Last Honest Man, the CIA, the FBI, the Mafia and the Kennedys and One Senator's Fight to Save Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Risen.
3: Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And, of course... The book is basically about Senator Frank Church from Idaho. And yeah. what I find extraordinary, just in terms of the current shift in how our politics have changed since the days of Frank Church, I mean, the state of Idaho now is com- represented by far right-wing senators and congressmen, and it's a kind of pe- petri dish for American Nazis. You know, and then you've got other examples like William Proxmire, an extraordinary. Uh, guy that was a liberal senator from Wisconsin now you know, you've got people like uh, Ron Johnson Republicans in that state you know others like John Culver and Max Cleland, and of course in South Dakota George McGovern may go this is this is Christie state now so what's right, happened to America right. with these uh, <laughs> these f- formerly states represented by Democrats now red 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 with Republican supermajorities in the state houses.
3: Yeah, it's really interesting. Idaho. I I didn't know much about Idaho before I wrote this book, uh, but Idaho, surprisingly, uh, from the '30s through the '50s and '60s, was kind of a swing state, and um, it was uh, Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman all won the uh, presidential election in Idaho five straight. Uh, elect, presidential elections went Democratic from 1932 through 1948. And uh, it was quite common in that time period for Democrats to be elected to uh, be governor or uh, Congress or even the Senate. And um, it really wasn't until the 1980s uh, that Idaho became just a straight Republican. Uh, uh, state and then um, it went even further, and as you said, got mired in um, right-wing militia and uh, alt-right type thinking. And uh, the irony is that North Idaho, which today is the home for for probably the most conservative right-wing conspiracy theorists in the in the country, um, was a Democratic stronghold in Idaho and it was North Idaho that it was filled with uh, labor unions and miners and uh, timber workers. And uh, that was the area of Idaho that kept re-electing Frank Church to the Senate. He was elected four times to the Senate from Idaho, and now it's the most conservative part of Idaho.
0: And who's the person you're referring to as a far-right-wing conspiracy theorist?
3: Well, they're... There's a whole number of groups that have been um, militias that have been built and created in North Idaho. If you remember Ruby Ridge in the 1990s, uh, the standoff and shootout between uh, militias and and the FBI happened in North Idaho.
0: Right. So let's talk about the book and Senator Frank Church of Idaho, who comes off as a sort of unlikely hero. He was leading the congressional opposition to the Vietnam War, which was very courageous. And he also became a very powerful critic of American imperialism around the world, which is in contrast to the fact that he actually harbored presidential ambitions. So he's sort of taking on the foreign policy establishment at the same time wanting to become president. So there's a contradiction there. Right.
3: Yeah, that was, the, that was the tragedy of his life, really, and the deep, uh, unresolved split in his personality was, on one side, he became radicalized by Vietnam. He had he had served in uh, World War II in China as an Army intelligence officer. Uh, he grew up in Boise and then went into the Army. Um, and he had seen the corruption and the incompetence of Chiang Kai-shek's Uh, Chinese nationalist regime in China that the United States was supporting. And he realized that it was a mistake for the United States uh, to support Chiang Kai-shek. And when the United States got got involved in Vietnam, um, he went to Vietnam for the first time in 1962 as a senator, and he saw what reminded him of Chiang Kai-shek, the corruption and the incompetence and the lack of public support uh, for the South Vietnamese regime. And he became an early critic of the war, uh, and probably the first, I think it's fair to say, he was the first credible member of the Senate who was considered a major figure to oppose the war. And as a result, his opposition to the war led a lot of other senators to uh, begin to rethink the war um and he had led him to be uh a, 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 an opponent uh can, you know fr- fr- uh Lyndon Johnson president Johnson considered him became he became an enemy of Johnson because he was so strongly opposed to the war
0: and the committees that he chaired investigating uh, the CIA post Watergate your book really gets into the details of what was exposed there uh, assassination right. plots by the CIA the, uh, links between the Kennedys and the mafia and s- the surveillance right. of uh, civil rights people by both the NSA and the Martin Luther King of course of the FBI I mean right. uh, William Colby <laughs> testified endlessly and I don't know whether right. part of his Catholic guilt that he just unloaded and, right. and, and, and <laughs> it got so bad that Kissinger was trying to stop him from testifying right because he was just right. opening it up floodgates of information. Now, you've done a lot of investigation and got some recently declassified stuff. So, James, what's the most, you know, what's the one that set your hair on fire the most? Well, I think
3: one of the the things that that Church, you know, uh, Church really focused on was uh, the CIA's uh, foreign uh, schemes to uh, assassinate foreign leaders. That t- that was the issue that really uh, he personally wanted to focus on, and it was the um, effort by the CIA to work with the mafia in uh, the early in the late 50s and early 60s to try and to assassinate Fidel Castro, and so uncovering and investigating that plot between the CIA and the mafia. Uh, was what really uh, led was the main focus of the Church Committee for its first couple months. And it was an amazing story that nobody really understood or knew before Frank Church and the Church Committee began to investigate it. And it led down some strange paths that Church didn't expect. You know, he found out that Sam Giancana, who was the Chicago mob boss who worked with the CIA uh, to try to kill Castro, his mistress was also sleeping with President Kennedy at the same time. And it was the church committee that uncovered the role of Judith Campbell, who was uh, this Hollywood uh, woman who was sleeping both with Giancana and Kennedy at the same time. And they had to investigate whether or not uh, Judith Campbell was the go-between between the mob and the Kennedys and the CIA. And um, it led, it was a very uh, surreal experience for church because he had known John Kennedy quite well. They were cl- close friends. And for him, this was a very, this was probably the most awkward time to try to investigate somebody or the he knew and who uh, you know the Kennedy family who he considered friends And well, that, that, that led to a lot of other investigations as well of the CIA
0: right well, the use of drugs and that horrible guy Gottlieb right,
3: right yeah, they had uh, they investigate they were the, among the first to investigate m k ultra, which was the CIA's effort uh, beginning in the 19 late, really in the late forties and fifties to use LSD to, uh, they, they believed that LSD could be turned into a mind control drug and that you could control people, uh, by secretly giving them LSD. And so they gave untold thousands of people, uh, LSD without telling them, uh, And uh, nobody knew that whole story at all before the church committee. And then they they also investigated uh, several other plots by the CIA to kill uh, foreign leaders, including Patrice Lumumba in Congo and uh, General René Schneider in Chile and to overthrow Salvador Allende. The, the list of the things that they had to investigate was huge because nobody had ever conducted any oversight of the CIA for its first 30 years. And so this was the first ever uh, investigation of the CIA. And he had uh, 30 years of uh, rogue operations to
0: look into. So in a way, could you say that Senator Frank Church uncovered or exposed the deep state.
3: Yeah, I do. I think I think the prior to 1975, when the Church Committee was created, uh, there was no congressional oversight of anything in the intelligence community. Uh, there were no intel. You know, today there is a Senate Intelligence Committee and a House Intelligence Committee those did not exist prior to the church committee. And there was no way that uh, Congress really knew anything about what um, the CIA or even the FBI were really doing. And it was really that the intelligence community was on its way to becoming a form of a deep state. They were operating without any independent oversight. And I I think the great credit should go to Frank Church and the church committee for the very first time to conduct major oversight and supervision and investigation of the intelligence community forced them to begin to, uh, rein in their, their rogue operations. And it led to a lot of reforms that kind of forced the, uh, CIA to come under the rule of law for the first time in its history. And I think, uh, That was a watershed moment for uh, the intelligence community.
0: And, of course, I mentioned the pushback that came from Henry Kissinger at the White House, but even more so came from Dick Cheney, who was uh, General Ford, President Ford's chief of staff. And the White House used the assassination of the CIA station chief uh, Welsh in Athens as a uh, way to try and shut down Frank Church, and of course the the, right. the CIA station chief was assassinated by rogue elements of Greek intelligence uh, who were angry at America's stance over Cyprus.
3: Right, right, yeah. The uh, what I found for the first time, that, you know, the the CIA and the Bush family uh, and uh, the republican party for generations continued to press the lie that uh, frank church and the church committee were responsible for the murder of richard welch who was the cia station chief in athens as as you said who was assassinated in december 1975 while the church committee was uh, conducting its investigation and they argued that the disclosures by the church committee had led to uh, to the ex- uh, exposure of uh, Richard Welch and that his identity had been leaked somehow by the church committee and that, and that made him vulnerable to assassination. And that was a complete lie. And the people at the CIA knew it at the time. And what I found was for the first time, I interviewed the man who was the deputy station chief in Athens, who was uh, Richard Welch's number two at the time, and he said that it was very obvious to everyone at the time in the CIA in Athens that the leak of Richard Welch's identity came from the KYP, which was the Greek Intelligence Service, because they were mad that the United States had allowed Turkey to invade Cyprus when after uh, the Greeks tried to stage a coup in Cyprus. Uh, and so that it really had everything to do with Greek politics and nothing to do with um, the church committee. But, and he told me that he reported that, all that information back to CIA headquarters And that made no difference. And the CIA and the uh, Ford White House continued to press the lie that somehow the disclosures from the church committee uh, had been uh, responsible for Welch's death. And that played a big political role in how the church committee was viewed after that.
0: Well, there's so much in the book. It's just extraordinary. And it's just you just wish that there, and I'm sure you do too, James, wish that there were some Frank churches uh, in the House and Senate today as we started out. yeah, saying, one of the
3: one of the one of the, one of the hilarious things now is that you know the church committee name has become a phrase, a catchphrase, like a synonym for a major congressional investigation. And every time, Nowadays, every time there's a big scandal in Washington, people say, well, we need a new church committee. Hmm. And so it's become a like a, a synonym for major uh, truth and reconciliation commission. And the irony now is that right wing Republicans are trying to say we need a church committee to investigate uh, Biden and the woke intelligence community that is. persecuting uh, Republicans and so Jim Jordan who has this uh, House Weaponization Committee has been nicknaming it the New Church Committee which is kind of a perversion of of what the Church Committee really was
0: Well, um, we've run out of time James but I thank you for joining us I appreciate it
3: Thanks very much
0: And again, I may speak with James Risen, a two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author whose investigative reporting has triggered a series of political firestorms. Among his best-selling books are State of War, The Secret History of the CIA and the Bush Administration, and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power, and Endless War. The senior national security correspondent at The Intercept and a former investigative journalist with The New York Times, his new book, co-authored with... Thomas Risen, just out, is the last honest man, the CIA, the FBI, the mafia, and the Kennedys, and one senator's fight to save democracy. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org
4: disappeared by half